Hey there, welcome to Pickled Parables. This podcast is presented by Parable Ministries as a Bible teaching resource. Thank you for joining us. Pickled Parables is a podcast about taking in and living out the Bible. Here we will study, contemplate, and testify to the Bible's incredible teachings and how it leads us to live better lives. To stay up to date with all things Parable, follow us on Instagram at parable underscore ministries and visit our website at parableministries.com. We hope today's message finds you well. Hi guys, welcome back to Pickled Parables. I am your teacher and host this week, Hunter Hoover, uh, and it's my privilege to get to share with you um, our introduction to Second Peter. Yeah. Last last time we were in Pickled Parables, uh, we oh, we closed out the book of First Peter uh, and. Peter gave kind of a general warning against false teachers, as well as some final reminders on the nature of suffering. And much of his first letter had to deal with the the concept and the idea of Christian suffering. We we brought Peter's first letter to the church in Asia Minor, Asia Minor particularly the dispersed Jewish believers, a group of Christians who knew in many ways firsthand uh, what it meant to suffer. And, and we closed out that letter, and it, it is believed that Peter's first letter was written sometime between 62 and 64 AD. Now, this said, it is believed that Peter's second letter, where we will be turning our attention to for the coming weeks, was also written sometime around 64 AD. And, and this concept, this, this date, is primarily held because Christian tradition and church history teaches that the Apostle Peter was martyred by the command of Emperor Nero in Rome sometime in or around 64 AD. And so... Uh, the writing of Peter's second letter, or more likely the reception of his second letter, comes months to at most a year or two since Peter last wrote these churches. And in many ways, this letter serves as a final letter to accomplish a handful of things, which we're going to be exploring in the coming weeks. But the first thing that Peter wants to do is he wants to encourage and challenge this group of Christians to live out their calling in Jesus. From there, he's going to address some challenges which have been brought against him and the credibility of the Christian faith, um, particularly his credibility as an apostle in some ways. And last in, in this letter, Peter is going to address false teachers uh, and this idea of the coming day of the Lord. To a group of dispersed Christians, Peter is writing his farewell address to them. He's saying goodbye and leaving them with what would be, to many of them, his last words in writing. So, with that said, as, as kind of a, where are we going, what is this book, this letter, Let's dive in and, and read the introduction, Peter's introduction, 2 Peter chapter 1, 
verse 1 through 3. It says, Simeon, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Peter speaks of this group of Christians as those who have faith that is of an equal standing, because there seems to have emerged uh, in, in some of the teaching in, in Peter's day and in some of these churches, perhaps, this idea of a second-class believer. Um, there, was, there was this group of believers who had been party to Jesus' ministry on earth or had, had learned directly uh, under the tutelage of someone who had been party to Jesus' ministry on earth. And then there was kind of this second group that are multiple connections separated from Jesus in where they had heard the gospel. And the result of this was kind of some weird treatment um, and kind of Christian cliques, if you will. And, and Peter sets out in, in his intro here to kind of squash this idea. And unless we be tempted to delineate between different classes of Christian, Peter has a reminder for us. Our faith is in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is, it is in Jesus' righteousness by which all Christians are made able to stand before God. It is not our own. It is not our connection. It, it doesn't matter if we got saved by a celebrity pastor in, in Peter's day, one of the direct apostles. While there may be Christians at different points in their walk with, with Christ, there are no different classes of Christian. Before we were all saved, we were all not saved, and we all cling to the same righteousness of Christ our Savior. Peter calls for them to have grace and peace multiplied to them. Two things that are much needed in times of distress, which, again, the group he's writing to knew something of distress. And so this is, this is Peter's greeting. He reminds them that their faith is of equal standing with, with, with other people's, and that they are saved, and, and uh, it is in the righteousness of Jesus that, that they make their claim before God. And then he wishes grace and peace on them. And from there... He, he lights into the, the body of his letter, which is really his first, his first argument, his first goal in the letter. He says in verse 3, speaking of Jesus our Lord, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours 
and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way there will be a richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of a reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort, so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter talks about the divine power of Jesus Christ, and, and how that that. Jesus Christ's divine power has granted believers all things needed pertaining to life and godliness. And we hear that, and I was like, that's a pretty big claim. Like, the claim is that, that the divine nature of Jesus, Jesus' godhood, somehow makes us be able to live life and pursue and live out godliness in this life. It's a big claim. And, and we might ask, well, how does, how does it do so? And Peter indicates that it does so as we come to know Jesus more. The more we know him, the more we grow in this. The process of knowing Jesus more causes us to access the things we need to live as Christians and and live this Christian life and grow in godliness. If you know more of the things of Jesus, you know more about who Jesus is and what he's about and, and what he said and how he lived. The implication is that it changes how we live, and it, and it, as a result, produces godliness in our lives. Now, through this deepening knowledge of Jesus, we also experience and access the promises of Jesus. And in all these, Peter says, we go through this process of knowing Jesus more and looking more like Jesus. And the result is us sharing in some of the divine nature. Now, I think this is primarily looking forward to this future kingdom, this eternal future where we will partake in some sort of this divine experience of God and Christ. But the way it is talked about is that we can begin to experience some sort of taste of this in this life. As we pursue Jesus and a deepening relationship with him, we are going to get a flavor for this this divine nature and this eternal existence. In this life, we can begin to feel the effects of having escaped the woes of this life, though we still live in the midst of them. This, again, is only fully realized in the coming kingdom, where we will truly partake in Jesus' divine nature, knowing Jesus fully, and having fully experienced his promises. And this is 
the introduction of Peter's call for people to live out who they are called to be in Jesus. The meaning of knowing Jesus more and as a result partaking and working on living out this divine calling of looking more like Jesus is not passive. It takes effort. It begins with faith, but if it stops at faith, James had something to say that it is kind of truly lacking. It's dead. Peter says we supplement our faith with virtue. Now, virtue is often thought of as this idea of good moral character or behavior coupled with caring about the right things. It is right conduct motivated by correct belief. It is behavior that displays a high moral standing. And and Peter's argument is this. If our faith in Jesus Christ, if our faith is in Jesus Christ, then our virtues rest in him as well. And if we think of Jesus and we think of the virtues he displayed, he displayed his virtue of love, courage, justice, mercy. We model our virtues after Jesus, made all the more easier when we seek to know and be acquainted with Jesus. The more we know who Jesus is, the more we know what he was about, the more able we are to pursue living how Jesus lived. It's, it's moderately difficult to pursue like modeling your life after someone if you don't know who they are. I think of, of people who claim to do something nowadays or they, they are doing something in the, in the vein of or, or in the spirit of some sort of um, former person who went before them. In invoking that, they're kind of claiming to have known and understood what that person was about. So to Christians, when we strap on that label of Christian, we're claiming to know who Jesus was, what he was about. And Peter suggests in knowing, it should spill over into doing in our virtues. Our virtues are a product and a result of our faith in Jesus. We supplement virtue with knowledge and, and there's something to be said here. When we seek to, it kind of is a circle. He says, we know Jesus, right. and we have this faith in Jesus, and we should supplement our faith with virtue, and then we should supplement our virtue with knowledge. It, it, it comes back to knowledge here, and there's something to be said. As we seek to live virtuous lives in faith in Jesus, we are going to come to know and understand the things of Jesus more. So often people want to know, well, how can I know Jesus more? I mean, I read my Bible and I go to church, but how do I connect? I feel like I, I, I want to know, like experience is the word. I feel like we throw the word experience. I want to experience Jesus more deeply. And Peter says, Have the same virtues as Jesus had. Live out the virtues of Jesus. If you want to know Jesus more, in short, do what he said. Add to your virtue knowledge. It's the same idea as the old saying and the old adage, and the Proverbs have a lot to say about this. 
but you are who you hang with. If you spend your time with people who live a specific lifestyle, talking to those people and caring about the things they care about, you should not be shocked when your life starts to look like theirs a bit. Peter says we supplement our virtue with knowledge, and in turn, we supplement our knowledge with self-control. A self-controlled person is someone who, in the face of uncertainty and difficulty, is able to control themselves. I, I work in a public high school, and a lot of the students that I work with, they do not have impulse control. Self-controlled is not something that I would describe them as, and, and it takes practice. <laughs> it doesn't just happen overnight. Being self-controlled can be difficult, especially when you are under attack and under pressure, as so many of Peter's audience were. Peter says, supplement your knowledge with self-control. Be self-controlled. It takes discipline. It takes practice. And one of the things that can help with this self-control is he says, supplement your self-control with steadfastness. In other words, the self-controlled life is characterized and supported by the virtue of being steadfast. Being steadfast means being resolved in the face of bad circumstances. It is connected to the idea of standing firm. You're planted and you're grounded and you're not moving. You remain steadfast. Peter also tells them to pursue godliness. Godliness is kind of, it shouldn't be, but it is kind of a weird word. Often we see it as the term godly, and, and we see it referring to something that is associated and characterized by the things of God. Oh, that was a godly movie. Oh, he is a godly man. If we say a person is godly, the way they live is in agreement with who God is and what God wants. In short, they are devoted. God. They exist to point people to God in their actions and words. Next, Peter calls for brotherly affection. Now, it's one thing to call someone brother or sister, but to love them and treat them as one makes all the difference. I, I must note, I I'm an only child. Um, I don't have, like, biological siblings. Um, but I have a number of friends who in my life, uh, Christian friends, who, who have became like brothers to me. And there's this sense that, though it is, it's, I'm not saying it's the same, but you begin to experience this, this feeling of this bond and this sense of brotherhood. And that feeling, that that sense of, I, I would, you know, I'll be there in a heartbeat for them. And that trust like that they would show up for me. I think that's this brotherly affection that Peter's talking about. And when you think of a group of Christians who is in the face of terrible, terrible danger and have been uprooted from their lives, this, this idea of brotherly affection for one another, this deep care and desire to show up and be there is huge. As Christians, we should ask ourselves, do we show favor toward, look favorably on, and positively 
interact with and seek to be there for our brothers and sisters. And I think Peter rightly notes that this is impossible without love motivated by faith. All these virtues that Peter has listed so far in this, they come from faith. They are pursued in faith because, as Peter puts it, the Jesus of our faith grants all we need for life and godliness. These are things that we need for life and godliness. And through Jesus' divine nature and our faith in Christ, he grants them to us. But notice, he doesn't just wake up and we don't just get like the swoosh the wand magic download of these virtues. It takes time and it takes effort. And we have to do something to practice these. And when we live in these, Peter says we partake in the divine nature of Jesus. In Christ, not only do we possess the capability and the the capacity to pursue these qualities, but in Jesus, they are increasing in our lives. They are growing within us. If we pursue Jesus and we are seeking to be more like Jesus and understanding Jesus more and want to know Jesus more and be more acquainted with who Jesus is and we are seeking to live out these values, we are going to find that these values will be increasing in our lives. They become more prominent. They seem to be growing. And as Peter says, these virtues and the fact that they are growing within our lives This keeps us from being ineffective and unfruitful. If a person is seeking to grow in Christ, to look more like Jesus each day, the Spirit working in their life can't help but show fruit there. If we want to be effective and fruitful for Jesus, which as as a Christian, the idea of being ineffective and unfruitful for Jesus should trouble you. But if we want to be effective and fruitful for Christ, we should, as an expression of the faith we have in Jesus, pursue knowing Jesus more by living out the virtues of Christ. Know God and do what he says. Be about what God was about. Peter says that a person who lacks these is nearsighted. Literally, he is looking right at the end of his nose. And I should note that he is not talking about a non-believer here. Peter says that they have been forgiven. Rather, this is someone who, though saved, is so focused on surface-level things and appearances, maybe so focused on delineating between what type of Christian they are and compared to someone else, as Peter and it gives the nod at the beginning of his letter. And it is one who is also limited in their understanding of Jesus. And we'd ask, well, why are they limited? What limits them? And Peter's already answered it. He's told them. It's just already in his letter, pursuing knowledge, what the result is and, and what the cause is. It, it, the, the result is virtue, and it, and it then should be supplemented with more knowledge of Christ. You cannot know more than what is at the end of your nose. If you're nearsighted, you're always constantly looking down your nose, and it's impossible to see what is out there. And Peter's going to tell them, what, in the big picture, what is out there. That's the good stuff. Some believers today, and some 
congregations have fallen into nearsightedness. They, they worry about and focus on congregation size, what programs they're going to offer at their church, church membership and how to grow it, the budget, the color of the carpet, and making sure that they are right. And while none of those things are bad in and of themselves, that is our focus. If that is our primary goal is to get those things right, they have missed the big picture. They have missed the thing beyond the end of their nose. To others, nearsightedness neglects the spiritual growth and maturity that could exist if they but look past what is near and familiar to them. We get comfortable. We say, I believe in Jesus, and I know that he was like loving and all that stuff, but I don't, you know, I don't know if I need to really pursue these virtues. I mean, I have Jesus. I have been saved. It's nearsightedness. May we not be nearsighted Christians. Rather, Peter calls us to live in a way that confirms our position in Jesus, in faith. When we live in this way, we live in the hope that God has called us to and chosen us to partake in, namely, the eternal kingdom. It's hope. Here it refers to the kingdom to come. But as Peter has said, as we live in this life, our actions and values speak to our security in that hope. Do we live in such a way that that shows people that we have a hope beyond this life that is beyond our nose. A person who is so convinced of the eternal hope they have cannot afford to live nearsighted in this world. They are looking for the things of God, both that they can enjoy and grow in in this life, and the extent to which those things prepare us and point us to our future hope of this eternal kingdom. Peter says the importance of these pursuits and living in light of their eternal hope is of so much value that he intends to remind them of it often, as often as he is able. It's a great reminder for us today to be reminding ourselves of the things of God, the hope we have in Jesus, and who we are because of Christ. And then after he, he gives them this, it's a pretty powerful charge. Peter tells them something pretty cryptic. And church history and tradition will prove him right. He tells them that he can tell he's nearing the end of his life. And he cares so much for these believers that he is trying to make sure that he leaves them with the reminder to live out who they are in Christ. If you knew you were going to die, or at least die soon, and you had a message to give, what would it be? If you wanted to leave a group of believers you had reached with one reminder, what would it be? Because in many ways for Peter, his second letter is his last words to these beloved believers. To Peter, clinging to the message of Christ is of tantamount importance because you can take it to the bank. It is secure hope 
which he discussed in his previous letter, and now highlights how it makes us able to live lives of godliness and lives characterized by Christ. He moves on from discussing their calling and living out worthy of that calling to discuss the glory of Christ and the impact of the Word of God. He says, starting in verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter recounts the testimony that they received about Jesus and from Jesus, and that is this. He, he reminds them that God the Father himself bore witness to Jesus Christ audibly from the heavens as his son. Peter says he was there. He saw it. He heard it. He was on the mountain that day. He saw the transfiguration, or at least the part he could see. I want to jump over to John chapter 17 and just read briefly Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 1. It says, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter, the author of the letter we're reading, and James and John his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. It is this amazing moment. To remember all that the disciples who go on to pen much of the back half of the New Testament saw during Jesus' time. Peter's like, I was there on the mountain. And and, and I want to just make a note here before we continue, because if I make it later, I think it will distract from where Peter's going. But Peter was on the mountain. He watched the transfiguration. He saw it. He heard God speak from this cloud. And yet even he says at the beginning of his letter, we have faith of equal standing. He doesn't count his faith as more valuable 
because he was there. Rather, he he reminds those who are reading his letter that he was there. He was a handful of others who were there during the time of Jesus. If anyone was going to have a claim to have some sort of a greater level of faith, it was them. And Peter's like, we have faith of equal standing. Peter says he was on the mountain. And we as Christians today, we live a life after all this, after God has testified to Jesus as his son. In many ways, we live in light of having had God confirm the prophetic word which pointed to Jesus. And all this, all this is all the more reason we can rest assured, rest secured in the word of God and what it says pertaining to who Jesus is and what our hope in him is. Peter says we pay attention to it like a lamp in a dark place. We stay near it. We allow it to guide us and show us the way. I should note here, did you catch how Jesus was described on the mountain? Shining. When, when Peter discusses light, in light of this remembering the transfiguration, he likely recalls this shining face of this the shining moment of Jesus on the mountain that day. And he says, stay near the light as if you need it in a dark place. This is going to be coupled with where Peter is going in his letter, and it rings out the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We cling to the word of God and the promises that scripture reveals, knowing they are secured by a faithful God who has bore witness to Jesus as the fulfillment and the means by which these promises will be delivered to us. Peter reiterates, we can trust God's word and value it and live by it and grow in Christ through it because it is the product of the Spirit of God moving human beings to produce it as if from God. This is a high view of Scripture. Christians should have a high view of Scripture. And, and if asked, well, how can you believe a, a book that's so old, 2,000-plus-year-old book? Number one, I should note, it does take some faith. At the end of the day, you have to believe in faith that God moved people to speak, to write. And, and in that, you go and you seek out tests, and you try to test and see if that is true. And what Peter arrives at the conclusion is it, it proves to not be some fable. It proves true. It is a high view of Scripture. And a high view of Scripture demands a response. In Peter's introduction, that response is living a life of Christian virtue characterized by who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. A life lived out of the reality of our hope in Jesus Christ. Peter knows that he is approaching the end of his life. Things are not going well for him. And, and he chooses his final remarks and his final words to leave his audience with this message. Live a life worthy of your calling and position in Jesus. 
knowing full well that the scriptures are of value and can be counted on and are trustworthy and true to what they seek to communicate. In them, you will know Jesus more, and you truly will, in, in through that process, find you have been given everything for life and godliness. Thank you all. We'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to Pickled Parables. If you enjoyed this message, please rate us, subscribe, and share with your friends. If you're interested in more things like this, check out our secondary podcast called My Dusty Bible. To stay up to date with all things parable, follow us on Instagram at parable underscore ministries and visit our website at parableministries.com. Parable is a volunteer organization and we would deeply appreciate your prayers. Thank you for joining us today. We'll catch you later.